Let's pray. Glorious God, we ask your blessing as we seek to open up the principles of your word and to apply them by way of Christian discernment to the teachings of Doug Wilson. We pray that you would guide us by the spirit of anointing. We pray that you would lead us into all truth, show us the things of Christ, and teach us, correct us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness that we may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. We confess our unworthiness of the least of your mercies, and so we pray for the forgiveness of our sins and for the light of your countenance as we study this material. In Jesus' name, amen. We now begin our second lecture on the subject of Doug Wilson's War on Piety. Doug Wilson's War on Piety. Last time we looked at the definition of piety as the fear of God, the reverent, intimate spiritual fellowship that God's people have with himself as they commune with God and as they obey his commandments in every aspect of life. We considered Dr. Joel Beakey's assessment of piety and of pietism as it manifested itself in a positive way among the Puritans. We also considered the structure of biblical reformation and of biblical transformation throughout the world. In the Lord's Prayer, the first petition, Hallowed Be Thy Name, makes piety the bedrock of that transformation process of discipling the nations. Secondly, we see that as people are converted, as people hallow God's name and fear Him, that those people are gathered together. God adds to the church those who are being saved. And so His kingdom comes. It expands. The, the tent of Zion extends its cords and God advances His kingdom throughout the world. And then we see the impact that it has upon society. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not speaking of God's eternal decree being accomplished. That's accomplished in heaven and on earth to an equal extent. But this is speaking of the doing of God's will in a sense where it's done in heaven in a superior manner than it is on the earth. And that would refer to God's revealed will, His moral law. God's commandments are obeyed in a worshipful and reverential way by the angels who are before his face in heaven. They intimately, lovingly obey his commandments, uh, meticulously, carefully, precisely. And the prayer is that as people are converted and are piously hallowing God's name, and as the church is filled with those people and advances throughout the world, that the church would be salt, light, and leaven such that throughout every institution of human society, individuals, families, churches, communities, nations, that God's commandments would be obeyed on earth with the same heavenly-minded, pious devotion that the angels employ in heaven. So really, in terms of this pattern or program for societal transformation, in terms of the Great Commission, it begins and ends with piety. It begins with the hallowing of God's name, and it ends with pious, heavenly obedience on earth as it is in heaven. And we said that the danger of the teachings of Doug Wilson 
is, is this, that in terms of the rich spiritual heritage of piety in our land, those who were most effective and successful in advancing God's kingdom and influencing society and discipling the nations, those who were most effective in that particular endeavor, the American Puritans, the preachers of the Great Awakening, these are the people that Doug Wilson condemns and critiques. So he's really undercutting the advance of God's kingdom and the leavening effect of God's righteousness and truth throughout the world. And that's a huge problem. Uh, We saw that he condemned the halfway covenant because he thought it was too rigorous to require a credible profession of saving faith for covenant children to come to the Lord's table. He critiqued the Great Awakening and, and said that it was revivalistic and that we should have embraced the presumption of regeneration in the case of covenant children, not evangelize them and urge them to be converted and profess their faith as believers. This, again, undercuts the transforming power of the gospel in families, in the church, and in society. So again, Wilson is the poster child for societal transformation, but subtly he undermines it every step of the way with his opposition to piety and this sense of always accusing piety of being pietistic, uh, which uh, again, Beakey dealt with so helpfully in, in the quotations we read last time. Now, for those that think that we're being too critical here, that Doug Wilson is only opposing a certain type of piety, but he's not opposing piety as a whole, uh, I would suggest that, that we consider footnote number three on the first page. Because when Wilson dismisses and opposes and even mocks reformed sacramental piety, the confessional reformed approach to preparing for the Lord's Supper, self-examination, the reformed approach to how we participate in the Lord's Supper during its administration, and so on and so forth. When he opposes this, he's opposing the pinnacle of confessional reformed piety. The Lord's Supper, when combined with the Word in this way, is the Holy of Holies in the New Testament visible church. This is the greatest privilege that we have in the church. And so this is really can be taken as almost a, a metonymy, a, a part for the whole. When you oppose this pinnacle of confessional reform piety, you're opposing piety in its totality because it's going to serve to undermine not just the Lord's Supper, but all forms of piety as it works its way and leavens the lump, sad to say. Now, in terms of reformed confessional piety on the Lord's Supper, the point that I want to make is that this is biblical piety. This is piety. It's not just one form of piety. It's not just one perspective on the Lord's table or one approach to piety. But what he condemns as pietistic revivalism is biblical piety and certainly confessional piety. Look with me at Mark chapter 14. We'll eventually reconnect with our outline here and pick up where we left off. But look with me at Mark chapter 14 and verse 18. This is the first administration of the Lord's Supper, which was administered by our Savior Himself in connection with the Passover. And you'll see if you have a paragraph heading, the 
he begins to institute the Lord's Supper in verse 22. But notice in preparation for the Lord's Supper, as they're sitting there in the upper room, verse 18. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, Is it one of the twelve? Sorry, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now I want you to think about this. This is the first institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is preparing his disciples to commune with them at the table in this way, by warning them that one of them will betray him and go to hell. This is how Jesus prepares them for the Lord's Supper. And they began to be sorrowful. And he doesn't say, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength and sort of manipulate the scriptures in a different direction. He doesn't do that. They began to be sorrowful and they began one by one to come to him and say, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And many of these disciples, all but one, were not on the verge of apostatizing and betraying him and going to hell. Only one of them was, as it were, a devil, Judas. But he allowed them all, even encouraged them all, to examine themselves. And when they say, who is it? He says, it's one of the twelve. Well, those are the only people in the room at this point. So he doesn't specify for them. He wants them to mourn and grieve over their backsliding, to examine themselves and recognize their weakness. Okay? He wants them to think about their unworthiness. He wants them to be concerned, to, to make their calling and election sure. He wants them to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. And he warns them of hell, that the one that betrays him, it would have been better for him if he had never been born. That's one of the strongest statements of hell in all the Bible. So this is how Jesus administered the Lord's Supper. So when you have guys like Doug Wilson, who are coming in and saying, well, it's just a revivalistic, pietistic tradition, it's only a century and a half old, it's this Johnny-come-lately idea that in preparation for the Lord's Supper, we should be examining ourselves and sorrowing over sin and meditating on our unworthiness. And people who are godly Christians, these are the 12, right? These are the 11 who eventually went on to be the apostles of Christ. So these are, in some sense, though they were backsliding in many ways, in some sense, some of the most godly people of that day. And he's wanting them to sorrow. He's wanting them to dwell upon their unworthiness and the sins that they need to be washed away, the sins that form the basis of why Jesus needs to have his body broken and his blood shed. Jesus does that, and he doesn't say, well, you're being sorrowful. Stop doing that. That's, uh, th- that's just part of this pietistic, revivalistic tradition. No, that's part of the biblical tradition of the Lord's Supper, and the Puritans did not get it from man. They got it from God, the God-man, if you will, from Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. 
Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So again, Jesus, in connection with the Lord's Supper, reminds them that they need the remission of sins and that by faith they have the remission of sins and that because of their ongoing sin, they need to continue confessing their sins and continue clinging to the remission of sins through the work of Christ, which is signified in the elements of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus emphasizes sin. What purpose, what value would there be in coming to the Lord's Supper to claim afresh remission of sins if you're not even thinking about sin? If, if you're just craning your neck to see how much bread somebody else in the pew got. You know, Wilson says we shouldn't be looking to ourselves. We should be looking around at other people, looking at people behind us. I'm assuming that means they don't celebrate the sacrament at a table in Wilson's congregation because other, you, know, you wouldn't really necessarily be looking behind you. They must be celebrating in the pews perhaps. But, but the point is you're supposed to be looking behind you to see if somebody else got enough bread. Is that the emphasis that we see here from the Lord Jesus? He does say, when he gives them the cup, that all of them should drink from it. So, that, so there is a horizontal sharing, giving and receiving of bread and wine, but the emphasis is spiritual, uh, and it involves sin. And you can see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we looked at this last Lord's Day in connection with the sacrament. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So as we said in our treatment of this in the sermon, there to discern the spiritual covenantal significance of the elements, especially the bread pointing to Jesus' body. This is not... Uh, discerning who the members of the church are, but in context, you see the word body is used in connection with the blood of Christ throughout the entire passage. Uh, the, The body and the blood, the body and the blood, the body and the blood. And then he says with respect to the bread that they are to discern the Lord's body. Discern that this bread is not common bread, it's not a common meal to gorge yourself. This is a spiritual sacrament Even as you're eating the bread, you are by faith feasting upon Christ and His presence and His uh, finished work. So that's the focus. It's spiritual. It involves self-examination. It involves meditating upon sin. It involves meditating upon what Christ did to take away our sins. His body was broken. His blood was shed. It's comforting. But it's comforting because we've meditated on the sins that breed the sorrow that needs to be comforted, right? If we're just craning our necks and we're happy that somebody got a big chunk of bread, you get the sense none of these spiritual blessings would even register with us. Larger Catechism 171. So we've seen this is biblical piety. This is biblical piety that Wilson is mocking and it's confessional reformed piety. Larger Catechism 171. They that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are, before they come, to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves of their being in Christ, 
of their sins and wants, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong, of their desires after Christ, and of their new obedience. And by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. Uh, There are proof texts for all of these. We don't have time to get into it. But all of these things are aspects of preparing for sacramental fellowship together with the Lord. Larger Catechism 174. It is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention... They wait upon God in that ordinance, not craning their necks, looking at other people in an undue fascination with the size of the chunks of the bread, but they wait upon God in that ordinance. They diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, heedfully discern the Lord's body, and affectionately meditate on His death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces." in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on Him by faith, receiving of His fullness, trusting in His merits, rejoicing in His love, giving thanks for His grace, in renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. Now you say, well, that's kind of individualistic. But my friends, The health of your marriage and of your family and of this church and of our communities and of our nation hinges on individual people fearing God. It hinges, your marriage hinges on you as an individual heedfully discerning the Lord's body. It hinges on you confessing your sins against your spouse and repenting and recommitting yourself by the grace of God to be a better spouse. It it hinges on your spiritual life. And what utter folly is it to think that it's going to help the horizontal relationships in the church to focus on them at the expense of our vertical relationship to God through Christ. The fact is, the closer we're drawn to Christ, the closer we're drawn to each other in marriage, in the family, in society, in the church. So the closer we're drawn to Christ, the closer we're drawn to each other. So the more intimate our fellowship, the more sanctifying the effect, the better our relationships will be. The horizontal is largely a byproduct of the vertical. And and this is, again, if we can just take a step back with Doug Wilson's entire program of the Christian faith and life, this is where I think, again, it seems very abstract, but just reflecting on it, this is where I think he goes astray. He doesn't understand that it's the vertical that is prominent and primary and that the horizontal is the byproduct that flows out. In terms of societal reformation, in terms of the reformation of the church, it's hallowed be thy name, it's personal piety, it's individual fearing of God, loving Him, keeping His commandments that then spills over into our relationships as we stir up others to love and good works. You know, you, you won't have Christian families if the individuals in the family are not Christian. Okay? It's going to struggle if you don't have full commitment in the family with the members of the family. A, a town where a vast majority of the people are unconverted 
or our backslidden Christians is not going to see the kind of joy in the city that we see in Acts chapter 8 when the Samaritans came to faith in Christ. So as Lloyd-Jones said in his sermon on Acts chapter 8, his sermon title was The Individual Writ Large. Societal and institutional reformation is grounded in individuals and then flowing to families. It's to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. And that's the pattern. And when, when we disregard the deep spirituality of horizontal piety, it is to the detriment of any kind of horizontal impact. So that's just by way of preface in seeking to flesh out some of the basis for what we said last time. But let's continue and pick up where we left off in our outline. We had seen that under point three that Wilson had attempted to retain some notion of self-examination, but in doing so, he undermines pedo communion. So his position is that an 18-month-old child, which you can see from the quotation in your outline under footnote two on the first page, Wilson thinks it's perfectly fine for an 18-month-old to partake of communion. Not an 18-year-old, 18-month-old to take communion. That's Wilson's position as a pedo-communionist. So every time he expounds the biblical doctrine of self-examination, it undermines that because he's describing things like holding up the Word of God as a mirror and asking honest questions. These are things that an 18-month-old cannot do. Now, let me just pause and go back to what I said last time. I am not suggesting that an 18-month-old should not be in the worship service, that an 18-month-old can't benefit from family worship or from the ordinances of Christ in public worship. I'm not suggesting that. There are, there's a gradual organic growth as we train and instruct our children in the scriptures from an early age. So there's value and there's momentum that's built that needs to be built at every stage. We don't want to skip the early stages just because biblically, in some sense, our children can't tell the good from the bad, Isaiah 7. There's a sense of ignorance and and of uh, developments that need to happen intellectually and morally in their conscience, in their understanding. So we understand that they're they're not going to get anywhere near what an adult is going to get from the ordinances of Christ. But they learn. They learn to sit. They learn to take it in. They begin to learn to sing. They learn to listen for the name of God. They learn to listen to their, their parents, maybe instructing them on a point or telling them to pay attention and highlighting something. Eventually, their parents maybe write out some notes with the sermon, and they're able to copy those notes and then go over them afterward. So there's a lot that can be done even from a very early age. But the point is, in terms of holding up the mirror of the Word and asking honest questions, an 18-month-old is not doing that. In terms of listening conscionably to the preaching of the Word and making sense of it, in a way that flows into participation in the sacraments, an 18-month-old is not doing that. And it doesn't matter what kind of rhetorical magic wand Doug Wilson wants to pull out. There's no way he's going to persuade us of that. So we saw in our fourth section that Wilson recklessly and inconsistently reinterprets Paul's command to discern the Lord's body. And he says again that it's really 
has nothing to do with understanding the real presence of Christ or the spiritual significance of the bread and wine. No, he, he says that you should be craning your neck to see how much bread somebody else got. And you're discerning the Lord's body by, by looking at the other members of the church and recognizing that they are members. And then he says, well, you see, if you're really discerning the Lord's body, you'll give communion to all baptized infants because they're part of the Lord's body. They're baptized into one body. And so if you're really discerning the Lord's body, you'll give the bread and the wine to the little infant at 18 months. And just to remind ourselves of the, how we refuted that, Wilson's own church, this is uh, section 4, quotation D, his own church policy of paedo-communion says this, any baptized child may partake of the Lord's Supper, provided the parents instruct the child at each observation of the supper, and the child can heed the instruction, end quote. So it's not just you're automatically given access to the sacrament because you've been baptized into the one body. There are certain prerequisites, and there are certain developmental prerequisites. Wilson's grandchild was given communion at 18 months. Are we saying that he was baptized at 18 months? Probably he was baptized after a couple of months. So presumably there's 15 or 16 months where he's not communing, but he's a baptized member of the visible body of Christ in the visible church. So Doug Wilson's own position doesn't give the bread to all the people that are part of the one loaf, one body. Despite the fact that he says things like this in quotation C, this means that everyone that we want to be considered as part of the one body should partake, end quote. But even his church doesn't do that. You see the foolishness of the whole thing. It falls to pieces, it's inconsistent, and it's reckless, reinterpreting one of the classic texts of the Bible in an idiosyncratic and sectarian way to promote paedo-communion. We saw in section 5, Wilson recklessly and inconsistently reinterprets the confessional teaching on table fencing. And uh, actually, this is where we left off, so let me read quotation A from Wilson. This is Wilson on table fencing. Quote, with regard to the ignorant, we also want to be careful how we fence the table here. There are types and degrees of ignorance. For example, there are ignorant people who ought not to be, and so they should be excluded from the table because their ignorance is culpable. Remember this. He's saying the only people that can be forbidden from coming to the table who are baptized, the only people we can forbid are those who have a culpable ignorance. In other words, they are sinfully and willfully ignorant and incapable of learning and, and being instructed. That's his position. He goes on, quote, but a five-year-old is necessarily ignorant, and to some extent, so is a mature Christian. Let's stop for a moment. You see how he blurs the lines? The fact that a five-year-old is ignorant in some sense, and then we as a, a mature Christians are ignorant of so much. The more we know, the more we know what we don't know, as, what was that, Socrates? Uh, Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But you see, he, he's mixing categories here, equating the fact that Sinclair Ferguson is ignorant in some sense, or Francis Turretin, or Wilhelmus Abrockel, 
at their height didn't know certain things about the Christian faith. And they would even humbly, I'm sure, confess their own ignorance. And we're going to equate that with a five-year-old. See, the sleight of hand, the rhetorical device, it's very, very misleading and dangerous. All right, picking up here. Quote, Consequently, we do not want to be maneuvered into saying that Christians should first grow big and strong, and then we will give them some food. This aspect of the confession has to be carefully considered when discussing the issue of child communion. Although I do not believe that Westminster Confession of Faith 29.8 excludes child communion necessarily. It seems clear that the ignorant addressed, at least here, is a culpable Sorry, the ignorance addressed, at least here, is a culpable, stiff-necked ignorance, and not the ignorance which every worthy partaker of the supper confesses daily, end quote. So when the confession says that those who are ignorant or scandalous are not to partake, Wilson is essentially saying that the word ignorant, in the minds of the authors of the confession, the members of the Westminster Assembly, when they said that, he, he says, meant culpable ignorance. They're not saying that a five-year-old or an 18-month-old should be denied the sacrament because of an unavoidable ignorance. And that is simply a matter of either ignorance or scandal on Wilson's part, one or the other, because there's no way, we don't have time to get into it or would waste our energy getting into it, but the idea that the Westminster Confession of Faith is allowing pedo communion is absurd. It, it, it just immediately, if you're interested in thinking about what Doug Wilson has to say and, and uh, Doug Wilson's books and videos, and maybe I should be interested in what he has to say, this should immediately be a red flag that he's either totally ignorant or dishonest here. Because it's clear throughout the entire Reformed Orthodox heritage that we have that paedo-communion was entirely rejected. And of course, this was intentionally put in there, this language, and it's clarified in the larger catechism as we saw last time, larger catechism 171. The Lord's Supper is only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. And so the Westminster Assembly is saying there are people that are incapable of examining themselves at such early years that they're not culpable. It's not a two-year-old's fault that he or she can't examine himself or herself. It's not the fault of an 18-month-old that they can't examine themselves. It's not a culpable ignorance. If they wanted to say culpable, the Westminster divines understood the English language, and they wrote a lot, and they put a lot of qualifying adjectives and adverbs throughout their confessional writings. But they didn't say culpable ignorance. In some sense, if it's culpable ignorance, then really it's scandalous ignorance, in which case there's only one thing that would keep someone from the table if they're baptized, and that is scandal. But they made two categories. So it's, it's not a scandalous or willful or culpable ignorance, it's just plain ignorance. And an 18-month-old is not at fault because that child can't quite get to the point where they can do what's required for the sacrament. Now, again, interestingly, with Wilson's own position in his own church, it once again contradicts everything he's saying here. 
Because why is it that his little grandchild, who was probably baptized at one or two months, and then is brought to the Lord's table at 18 months, and presumably based on the elder protocols that we've seen, it's because the child was not at a point to heed instruction from the parents. So 15 or 16 months go by where the child is incapable of heeding instruction from the parents, and so they don't bring the child to the Lord's table, even though the child is baptized. Now, according to Wilson, the only kind of ignorance that would justify that is culpable ignorance. But are we going to say that the the three-month, four-month, five-month-old covenant child who's baptized, who's not partaking of the sacrament in uh, in Wilson's congregation, are we going to say that that's a culpable ignorance? That's absurd. I don't think Wilson would say that it's his... uh, In fact, he he says that the five-year-old is... necessarily ignorant, okay? But if the five-year-old's necessarily ignorant, then the five-month-old is necessarily ignorant, in which case, why aren't they giving to the Lord's Supper to the five-month-old? If you follow out the logic, it just utterly collapses in on itself. Pedo-communion is something that cannot be consistently proven. Every time he tries to do it, he undercuts his own position. And the fact that he tries to enlist the Westminster Confession of Faith is inexcusable. Section 6. Wilson's theology of the Lord's Supper confuses the Christian church with a Christian society. This is his neo-Kyperianism coming through. This is his desire to see Christ as king over every square inch of society. We would agree with that. But in the Kuyperian model, there's what we might call an intellectual or epistemological egalitarianism. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, in the Kuyperian model, the centrality of the vertical, the centrality of piety, of prayer, of worship, of the church, of salvation, of the gospel... The, the centrality of those things that are supremely concerned with God's glory and man's reconciliation and an intimate fellowship with God, that historically among Calvinists had the central place. The tabernacle was in the middle of the camp and the tribes were encamped around it. But with Kuyperianism, or we might say Neo-Kuyperianism, there's an effect that takes place that makes all areas of life in one sense equal. You see this throughout the, the writings of Kuiper, Dewey Beard, and various other thinkers. You see it in the Theonomic Reconstruction Movement, where there's such an emphasis on Christian culture and redeeming the culture that there's a, a lost emphasis, the historic emphasis, on the church, on worship, on piety. And this tempts the radical two kingdoms people to go to extremes. So yes, we oppose the radical two kingdoms people, the... Um, you know, the Escondido theology, we would have problems with that where they seem to deny the all-pervasive authority of the Bible for all areas of life, every square inch of life, where, where they seem to lack that universal scope to their outlook on God's law for society, understand they're being provoked by neo-Kyperians like Wilson and others who are focusing so much on Christian art, Christian plumbing, uh, Christian everything, that there's a lost emphasis on the Christian church, Christian worship, Christian spirituality and piety. 
and the sacraments. Okay? So when, when you look at the Reconstruction Movement, which largely began in Southern California, and then you look at the Radical Two Kingdoms view, which largely began in Southern California, you see these two opposite extremes feed off of each other. And I would argue that neither of them really captures the historic Protestant, Reformed, Puritan, Westminster Confession type of perspective, where we do have two kingdoms. The church is unique, it is at the center, but it's out of Zion that the law goes forth, conquering the nations and bringing every human institution under the feet of King Jesus. So that's a long way of prefacing this, but here's part of Wilson's neo-Kyperianism coming out, confusing the church with Christian society, confusing the uniqueness of the church at the center with all of these other Christian cultural expeditions that, that he wants us to pursue. Listen to this, quote, the marks of the sacraments place a visible difference between the members of this church and the world outside. When the world outside is brought to faith, the marks of the sacraments will place a visible difference between this tribe and the next tribe over. One of the great failures of North American evangelicalism is this. We have not communicated a scriptural and covenantal identity to our children and grandchildren. We have not learned how to function as a people, end quote. So Wilson is not viewing the church as one of three God-given institutions for society, the family, church, and state. He's viewing the church or the kingdom as this all-encompassing reality. So that if you had a covenanted land, the church would morph into the state. The church would be the civilization, the culture, the people group. But historically, even the strictest covenanters though they would perhaps differ on certain points of emphasis, and, and I don't really want to get into that, but, but for the most part, even the strictest covenanters would have viewed the church as a subset of the commonwealth. Listen to George Gillespie from Aaron's Rod Blossoming. Quote, the commonwealth is not in the church, but the church is in the commonwealth. That is, one is not therefore in or of the church because he is in or of the commonwealth, of which the church is a part. But yet everyone that is a member of the church is also a member of the commonwealth of which the church is a part. The church is a part, a subset of the surrounding culture. Even in a covenanted land like in Scotland, even in a land where the church membership might compose a very high percentage of the overall citizenship in the land. Okay? There's still even theoretically a distinction that the church is one institution among three in that land. There's family, church, and state. And the family doesn't become the church. The church doesn't become the nation. But again, this is part of the problem with neo-Kyperianism, even departing from, from Kuyper's view of sphere sovereignty, even to just this almost uh, Erastian type of model to where the sacraments eventually in a Christian land would become marks of the tribe, not marks of the church, but marks of the, the society, of the nation, rather than marks of God's covenant people within the nation. Uh, he wants the church to be a people. He wants it to be this, this uh, societal community, and, and we can appreciate some aspects of that, but you can see how the sacraments are, div are, are uh, removed here 
from the church to be placed in the hands of the society. And that's Erastianism, right? Because the king is saying, listen, we're a Christian country. And the sacraments are a mark of our Christian country to distinguish it from that other Christian or from that other non-Christian country or that other Roman Catholic country. And so if this is marking out our people group, well, who's in charge of the people? The king. And so it's not ecclesiastical discipline and authority that involves the keys of the kingdom with respect to opening and shutting the doors for the sacraments, but rather it's the king because he's king of the people group. He's king of the nation. And you you can see Wilson's theology would just lead us way back into the past to, to, you know, in retrograde motion. And it's very sad. Final section here. Section 7. According to Wilson and his Federal Vision allies, America's spiritual decline has occurred precisely because evangelical preachers have focused too much on matters of personal holiness and spirituality and not enough on biblical principles of wealth and economics. Okay? This, in some sense, is the most troubling at a practical level in terms of Doug Wilson's theology. This is a blood-red flag for his entire theology. According to Wilson and his Federal Vision allies, America's spiritual decline has occurred precisely because evangelical preachers have focused too much on matters of personal holiness and spirituality and not enough on biblical principles of wealth and economics. You see, we've been reading too much of the Puritans and of the life of God and the soul of man, and we should have been reading volume 15 of Gary North's Economic Commentaries on the New Testament. You see the Christian Reconstructionism just oozing out of Wilson and the Federal Visionists here. Let's listen to what he says. Quote, Evangelicals have concentrated so long and so hard on being spiritual, with spiritual being defined in an ethereal and otherworldly interest. Stop there. What about Colossians 3? Isn't that what spirituality is? By faith, being seated with Christ in heavenly places, right? Don't we want earthly obedience that reflects the otherworldly reverence and submission of the angels in heaven? Colossians 3.1, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. This is biblical piety, and he's opposing it. This is the problem. We're too heavenly-minded. We're too concerned with otherworldly interests. You would think that Jesus came to establish a kingdom that's not of this world. Oh, wait, actually he did. But this is Wilson. He says this has happened, quote, so that we have cultivated no theology of material blessings. Think about this, he says. Millions of Christians heading into a cornucopia of material blessings of a magnitude and on a scale that most of the earth's inhabitants throughout the history of the entire earth could scarcely even comprehend, and they did so without their preachers and teachers telling them how to behave while there. I am talking about the conservative pietists who emphasize spiritual joys and spiritual truths and private devotion and keeping one's own personal nose clean, not to mention heavenly bliss, but who steadfastly refuse to apply the Scriptures to a comprehensive account of how a wealthy society was obligated to serve Christ with that wealth. And so our wealthy society refused to serve Christ and turned instead to pornography, drugs, mammon, idol worship, and ultimately to violence. 
And it was multitudes of silent preachers who watched them go to instruct the people biblically might incur the charge of theonomy. Someone might utter the dreaded word, reconstructionist. Well, at least he's right there. That is a dreaded word. Or they might call you a Kyperian. I think he's on to us here. They might think that you want a second Christendom. And even if it is touted as a mere Christendom, there is still too much of Christ in it. And if there is one thing that pietistic Christians cannot stand, it is too much of Christ in things. Keep it within the conference walls, friend. Use it in such a way as to make your private devotional life soar like a bird. Sail around your bedroom. We don't care. But what has been implicit in all of this from the beginning is manifest and apparent now. In, ter- in times like ours, pietism is ungodly. End quote. See how he portrays our national narrative. Here's what happened. Christians had all this wealth, and the reason we lost it is because we didn't hear enough sermons about how to use wealth in a godly society. We didn't hear enough sermons about uh, biblical principles of wealth and economics. We should have been listening to the Kyperians, the Reconstructionists, because their movement was highly successful, except not. It was an utter train wreck. But apparently these are the people he's saying we should follow in their footsteps, putting at the center of the church and of the Christian faith and life, biblical principles of economics. And that's why all the curses of the covenant have fallen on America, except not. That's totally false. Read Deuteronomy 28. Read Leviticus 26. We talked about it in the sermon this morning. Why is it that nations lose those physical blessings? I don't recall reading anything in there about biblical principles of wealth and economics. It does talk about serving the Lord, but the emphasis is on the Sabbath, the sanctuary, biblical worship, biblical piety, joyfully giving thanks, spiritual joy. Deuteronomy 28, 47. Read that. Responding to the physical blessings with a heart of joy and gladness. But he mocks spiritual joy. He says that our private devotional life in the Puritan tradition, we're soaring like a bird, sailing around the bedroom, mocking the spiritual joy and piety that has been the bedrock of our nation. How did we get a Christian society? Well, it was George Whitfield sailing around his bedroom, reading Matthew Henry's commentaries. It was the Tennant brothers, Jonathan Edwards, soaring around the, the, the world in, in his... Listen, the people that built the Christian culture that barely remains are people that were sailing around the room and soaring like a bird. They weren't people like Doug Wilson who mocked biblical piety. Who is it that advanced the cause of the city of God on earth? It was Augustine. Read his confessions. Read his writings. Read his sermons. Is it a diatribe on Christian principles of wealth and economics? No, it's piety, my friends. Piety, church, society. Doug Wilson mocks this, and apparently people are turning to pornography and drugs because they didn't hear enough sermons on biblical wealth and economics. But they heard too many sermons about keeping their own personal nose clean through personal holiness. In the evangelical church over the last several decades, have we heard too much of an emphasis on personal Bible reading and prayer? Has that been the emphasis? I don't think it's the emphasis. Ask your evangelical friends how much time they spend reading their Bible and praying. Ask how many sermons they've heard of their pastor bringing warnings of hellfire and brimstone on people who lust in terms of pornography. This is not an emphasis in the church. 
Far from it. It's the lack of piety, the lack of emphasis on personal holiness, the lack of emphasis on the soul-satisfying delights of, the, of Christ that have left a vacuum that's been filled by the pornography, the drugs, and the mammon. And ultimately, he says, the violence. I'm going to close with the quote from Steve Schlissel, who is a federal visionist to the core. And this is just a, let it be a warning to us all concerning this, this perspective. Quote, Western Christendom was not built up by the method of individual conversion. It was a way of life which the people accepted as a whole, often by the decision of their rulers, and which, when accepted, affected the whole life of society by the change of their institutions and laws. If you want to know how it could have been that a nation that was once pretty much uniformly Christian in its understanding has become anti-Christian, you need look no further than this individualized conception of God's dealing so that it became every man for himself. Children of believers on their scheme are brought near to Christ but must not be regarded as truly in Christ until they give evidence of some kind. Some go so far as to say that elect children who do not die in infancy must be sustained until they can have a faith moment or a beginning of faith marked by assent and a set of understood propositions about themselves and Jesus. Until then, they are not justified. After all, one can only be justified by faith and faith alone. Thus, for these men, the covenant status of the children of believers is a halfway sort of thing, end quote. That's from the original Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference on the Federal Vision in 2002. Wilson was there. This very much aligns with Wilson's own perspective on the narrative of our country. Notice the attempt to cut and paste medieval nominalism and, and medieval Christendom into Protestant Christendom, because I'll tell you, Protestant Christendom here in America, to the extent we've had it, was not based upon our rulers making a decision and forcibly baptizing everybody, okay? It was based on the Great Awakening, largely, and on people that emigrated to this country, immigrated to this country with their Bibles and their psalm books, worshiping God and proclaiming His gospel and seeing individual people converted. We reject individualism, of course, but we understand that for it to be to you and your children, it's got to start with you. And so the individual is very significant as well. Uh, I know I've gone over my time here. Any, any questions? Yes. Right. Good question. This is a point that needs to be made. So, and I'll just put it in the first person. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that involves understanding the Word and heedfully discerning the Lord's body. And I will say, this is going to be recorded, 
if I ever get to the point where I don't understand what I'm doing in the Lord's Supper, please do not bring me to the table. Please do not turn it into some kind of sentimental thing bringing me to the table if I'm not able to understand what I'm doing. And that's the principle. We turn the Lord's table into this sentimental, horizontal fellowship when primarily it involves doing something. You wouldn't want someone in the pulpit that was not able to preach. And we shouldn't have people at the Lord's table that are not able to understand these things of what they're doing and the truths they're professing to some extent and the covenant that they're renewing. So it's not excommunicating someone if they're not able to do those things anymore. It is just simple common sense. And it's certainly not a culpable ignorance. But yes, for myself, why would I want to be at the Lord's table if I don't even know? I mean, what's the benefit there? Are we Roman Catholics that there's automatic grace? Is it sentimental like the liberals? It's nothing to do with grace. We just think it's really neat to have you at the table. Okay, that's idolatry. So it needs to be based on the biblical prerequisites. So is that easy? Does that mean every session is going to have the same perspective? Of course, there have to be reasonings and reckonings of these principles, but that's what I would say for myself. So I have uh, one more question. Sure. Correct, yes. There's a good article on this in a book that was on the book table, but one of you took it. You know who you are. But uh, Cornelis Venema has a book on covenant theology that has essays on covenant theology. I can't remember the title, but he has a really good article there on covenant infants dying in infancy and those who are beyond the ability to understand the ordinary call of the gospel. I believe it's chapter 10 of the Confession on effectual calling, where it outlines the difference between ordinary calling and extraordinary. So I would say for those who through mental incapacity are unable to make sense of the gospel, that we have the same confidence that we would have for an infant dying in infancy. And, and for myself, if we had time, I'd, I'd show the basis of that robust confidence. But Venema has a very good article there where he talks about the Dutch standards, the three forms of unity, which are more explicit on the point and how the Westminster standards leave it open for, for perhaps a view that has less confidence. But for myself, I, I would have robust confidence that those covenant children and or disabled individuals, they will be in heaven through the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. But we can't really deal with that right now. Uh, was there another one? Yes. Yeah, 
And, and again, maybe the answer is, you know, I'm thinking again of just my own situation. Maybe I come to the table, I, but I would not want to participate with the elements if I don't know what I'm doing. But yes, I think these are situations that we face and, and we have to understand that though somebody, I mean, we're not Arminians, that somebody loses their salvation. And that's important because when somebody experiences dementia, in some cases, they, they lose contact with many of the beliefs and convictions in their mind that they had, and they lose a lot of things. Some people become catatonic under other uh, medical conditions, or they're in a coma, and they're still being held in the hands of the Good Shepherd, and we should not worry about that. That may limit their access to certain ordinances, like the leper who didn't come to Jerusalem, um, and there are many other examples in the Old Testament. There are limitations, but not limitations on saving grace, which is at the end of the day, the most important thing anyway. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that you would take these truths and those that are of you from your word, that you'd plant them deep within our hearts, that they might take root downward and bear fruit upward, even a hundredfold. We pray that if anything was said that is not in accordance with your word, that it would be out of sight, out of mind, never to be considered again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.